Good evening, everybody. You can take a seat. Welcome to the table. My name's Maggie. I'm on staff here. We are glad to have you. If it's your first time, not your first time, uh, if you're joining us on the live stream, we're just happy to have you. Thanks for being here tonight. Um, I want to let you know that we have a couple of fun things coming up in February. Can you believe it's February already? I cannot. It's almost February. But um, I wanted to let you know about a couple of things. So first up, we started a really cool thing on Monday afternoons in Advent, and it's kind of turned into a Monday afternoon, um, we could call it a devotional, a book club, right? We're going through this book called Between Two Kingdoms, and um, we, have, we have done the first half. We're doing the second half. It's at the Jovenelli House. It's a week from tomorrow is our, is our next discussion. And we'd love to have you. We would love, if, even if you haven't read. I came to the first one, and I hadn't read, and it was really a meaningful discussion. So we would love to have you. If you are a person who's got some daytime availability, availability is that word, um, come out and join us. You can get all the details like the address, the time, the title of the book at our website at thetablempls.com backslash calendar. And then just a couple of days later, this is next week, not this coming week, the week after, we're going to be back at the Giovanelli's house on Wednesday evening uh, for women at the table. This is a really low stakes way to come to meet people from our community just to uh, make some connections and we'd love to have you for some snacks, some drinks, some conversation. If you identify as a woman, I'd love to see you there. So the time on that is going to be uh, Wednesday the 8th at 7 p.m. And um, yeah, you can again get all those details on our calendar. And then two weeks from this evening, uh, February 12th. We will not be having worship because um, that is Super Bowl Sunday. And if you know our community, we are culturally engaged. We are community oriented. And so uh, those of us who are really into football and some of us who aren't will be uh, watching the big game that night, hanging out with friends, eating some good food, and we encourage you to do the same. So we won't have worship that evening. There won't even be online worship, but we'll be back together in person on February 19th. Um, if you think to yourself, there's no way I'm going to remember all of that, don't worry, I got you. Um, I'll send you a text to remind you I might even manage to get it on this, the right date uh, this next week. Um, so uh, go ahead and subscribe to that. You can text the word TABLE to 33222, and I'll let you know about um, changing service times or events that we want you to know about. Um, also, we want to say thank you so much for the ways that you support this community through your financial gifts. We're grateful for you. Uh, we couldn't do what we do um, without your support. So thank you for being in our corner. You can give um, at the box in the back. You can give online. Um, you can become a monthly giver. That's the best way. But we are so appreciative of all of your gifts. Um, we do also want to just take a moment to acknowledge the events of the past week and a half, um, both the mass shooting in Monterey Park, California. We want to acknowledge um, the, the death of Tyree Nichols um, at the hands of Memphis police. Um, and we want to just name a couple of things. So first, we want to grieve with the families. We stand with the, the broader black and Asian American communities. Um, and uh, we also acknowledge and affirm the image of God that is present in each of these people, the victims and the perpetrators alike. And that's a hard thing to stand in, but we do that. Um, and as we seek to follow the, the example that Jesus set forth, we take this moment to kind of renew our commitment to the work of justice and also to pray. So would you do that with me now? Will you take a moment and pray with me? God of justice, we do pray for the families of uh, those who have been killed by gun violence, by police brutality. Um, we pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would be really near to them and be their comforter in these days. Lord, I ask that you would hear the lament of all of our hearts 
when we follow the example of the prophets and we say, how long, O Lord? How long do we wait for justice? Equip us, Lord. Equip us to do this work of dismantling white supremacy within our nation and within ourselves. And I pray, Lord, that you would keep us. Um, keep us away from compassion fatigue and also keep us on this path of reconciliation. We pray all of this in your name. Amen. Thanks, Maggie. We always want to be people that more than just even taking a moment to pause and pray and remember, but people that are moved, moved to be part of changing broken systems. Because our hearts break in this last few weeks. Oh, kids. Kids, you are dismissed and can go with your teachers. Wow. You go. Here, I'm just looking at you guys. Thank you for pointing that out. Oh, yes, third through fifth grade, back here. Everyone else, over here, see the Hirschfelds. There you go, Soren. Can you see him right there? There you go. Very good. Okay, Andrew. Well, hey, welcome, everyone. It's nice to see everybody after a few weeks' break. And gosh, you know, you just never know what to expect with this cold weather and and the playoff games, but we're glad you're with us. My name's Debbie Manning. I'm one of the pastors here at the table. And you know what? We are in the middle of a series. Allison, hi. That we, <laughs> that we are calling shoulders beneath our feet. We're continuing this conversation that Matt started a few weeks ago about the saints. And I have to tell you, we were just talking about this. When Matt suggested this, I thought, oh, this would be kind of cool. A little interesting to hear about the saints. About, this is about how much I know about the saints growing up Protestant. My husband, Steve, and I probably have the details wrong, but was named after a saint. And I know he was always bummed because as a kid he had to go to church on his birthday. So that's about what I know about the saints. But I have to tell you that the whole, um, not more than studying, because of course I've been studying it, bringing this forward, but even listening to Matt and the message that he's had, it has been so much more relevant to my life to, I think, our life, the life of faith as a community. So it's been so cool to look at these people that have come before us, the stories, the shoulders we stand on, the people that have done the hard work, the beautiful work of following Jesus. And they're about stories. They're stories about people who not only answered the call, but they've given their life to the cause. Real people, broken and messy just like all of us in this room. And I think when um, I was doing some deep thinking about what this meant to me and the relevance of this, there's something that all the saints we've studied have held in common. And of course, it's this sort of connection to the divine. But more than that, every one of them, no matter where they're from, because we're looking at people from different time periods, from different cultures, different genders, but they were all people who practiced the ways of Jesus. And I think for me, for this community, that's part of our mission statement. A community practicing the way, ways of Jesus. It's been such a beautiful reminder of what that looks like, what it can look like. And like Matt said when he started this, the world needs saints to show us the way to true humanity. And the church needs saints to remind us, to remind us what it means to follow Jesus, to live out our calling. You know, each of the saints and their stories, um, I don't know about you guys, that they've spoken to me in different ways. I mean, 
We've talked about St. Nicholas. We've talked about Martin Luther King Jr. Last week, Matt talked about Oscar Romero. And I don't know about you guys, but I walked away, you know, with what Matt left us from his life and this idea of what have I sacrificed to follow Jesus? You know, it was just such a beautiful story about someone who was this archbishop in El Salvador. He was a man, deep man of faith, but kind of safe. Didn't want to get involved in this movement of liberation, and he had a conversion moment. Changed everything. From that moment on, he gave his life, literally gave his life to the cause of justice and liberation. And tonight we're talking about someone else with a conversion story, although she would say that our stories are one perpetual, of one of perpetual conversions. And today we're talking about Dorothy Day. Maybe not so well known to some of you. There's quite a few people who are like, who? Who's Dorothy Day? She's not the one who, who comes to mind when you think about saints. It certainly is Thomas Merton and Martin Luther King Jr. and St. Francis of Assisi. But on all accounts, she was a social activist. She was a disruptor. She was a friend of the poor. She was a follower of Jesus Christ. And she was a radical witness to the love of God. So who is Dorothy Day? And I was talking to Matt before we came on, and I'm uh, relating to some of the things that you said, Matt, that it's super hard to get your arms around this because it's such a big, huge story. There's no way that I'm going to be able to do that for you tonight in 20 minutes. But I am going to share what I can about Dorothy Day and how I think her life and her work is relevant to who we are as people of faith. So um, back in 2015, maybe you guys remember this, uh, Fran Fran Pope Francis was giving a historic address to our Congress, the United States Congress. And in that, he was speaking about the spiritual and moral legacy of the United States and how we need to carry on the work of justice. And he talked a lot about, um, he talked about the poor. He talked about um, about capital punishment. He talked about our refugee crisis. All these things that we as people of faith need to be a part of in changing the system. So he held up four Americans, four people from U.S. history, people of great faith who challenged the status quo, people who moved the dial on our moral and social compass. They held this country to a higher standard. They they lifted the bar on what it meant to live out the life of faith. And so as the story goes, Pope Francis starts talking about these four amazing Americans. He talks about Abraham Lincoln, and then he talks about Martin Luther King Jr., and he talks about um, Thomas Merton. And as he's talking about these men, all the journalists, all the Congress people, they're nodding their heads in agreement. But then he mentions Dorothy Day. And her granddaughter loves to tell the story of how the minute he mentions Dorothy Day, all the journalists frantically are on their search engines, on their phones, and on their computer looking up, who the heck is Dorothy Day? Well, Dorothy Day is an American born in, in 1897 on the eve of the Spanish-American um, War. But she's a person known for her passion for peace, for justice, for serving the poor. And she's a complex person, a person that was an Orthodox Catholic, and at the same time, she was politically radical. 
She was a rebel who courted all sorts of problems her whole life. She challenged three generations of people. And she willingly went to jail over and over and over again for the belief she's held. I mean, this woman lived a long life. She went to jail for um, marching with women in the suffragist, suffragist movement. She, she was someone who um, demonstrated against nuclear arms, demonstrated against the Vietnam War. The last time she was um, jailed for two years, she was in her 70s. She was protesting along with the Farmers Union in, in California. She was someone who stood up for what, what she believed in. So just bear with me for a little bit of context because it's so important, I think, to not only her story but how it's relevant to each of us. As I said, she was born in Brooklyn, New York, in 1897. She grew up in a, a nominally Protestant family. She always had um, this draw to the divine. She always desired a connection to the divine. And on her own, she would go to church with an Episcopalian family, friends of hers, um, she, something about that felt like home. And as she looked back, even as a child, she said that she understood two things about the world. She said that the world was broken and filled with injustice and inequity. And the second thing she said was that she had this longing. She was aware of a longing for beauty and truth and joy. And sometimes that would randomly just stop her in her tracks. And she came to call that an encounter with God's love. But here's the sad thing. Um, somehow that was deeply born in her, that spiritual peace. But as she became more and more familiar with religion, she started to become disillusioned. She started to look around. There's a story about her when she was just a young teen and she was living in Chicago and she took care of her younger brother. And she would walk him in a stroller through some of the slums in Chicago. And even as a young teen, she would think to herself, I don't get how some people have so much and have some people have so little. I don't understand how the church isn't doing anything about the poor and the suffering. Like that just didn't line up for her. And over time, what she found was that most of the people she knew that were people of faith, that were really involved in the church, that what was more important to them was making sure church attendance, the piety, the praying, but they seemed so disconnected from the suffering in the world. And that didn't line up to her with what the gospel message was. Even as a kid, she got that. So there was a point as a young adult, maybe a late teen, that she had to make a decision in her own mind that she either leave religion, she had these choices, or care for people that were suffering. She left religion. That's how she viewed the religious, that they weren't the ones caring for the poor and the suffering. So here's her story, a very brief story. She drops out of college. She moves to New York. She works as a muckraking journalist. She joined fellow radicals in the fight for justice. She spent much of her 20s writing for left-wing um, newspapers. She was what people described um, as a bohemian. She lived a bohemian lifestyle. She hung out with artists and writers, socialists, communists. She, ex she herself considered herself an anarchist. But they all fought the fight. She dated writers and artists. She fell in love. She got her heart broken. She had an abortion. She was depressed. She attempted suicide twice. 
She wrote a novel. She fell in love again. She had a child, a daughter that she named Tomar, and she became a Catholic. You know what I love about her story? Fully human. And then there's this connection with the divine. For most of her young life, oh, and I have to mention that when she became a Catholic, it came at a cost because all of her radical friends, the friends that were doing the work for justice, were serving the poor, all of them cut her off because they saw the religious as an enemy of that. And not only that, but she lost her partner, the father of her baby, when she became a Catholic. So at a cost, she continued to move toward where she felt God was calling her, to the religious life. So for most of her young life, she was committed to this cause of justice, to the poor, to the oppressed. But something was always missing. There was something missing. And until the age of 35, it was then that she finally figured out where she thought she was supposed to go with her life. And here's the interesting thing. It was the radicals who loved the poor so well that actually pushed her to a relationship with God. It was a both and for her. It was this combining of this newfound faith with her passion for the least of these that made her feel like she finally found her home. So she was a journalist at heart, and it was during the Great Depression that she saw in her neighborhood so much suffering. Hundreds of people wandering the streets looking for food and money and jobs and work. And once again, she was so distraught. She was distraught about the church's indifference to the poor and the suffering. So as a journalist, what did she do? She started writing. She started writing about labor and economics and racial issues. And she aimed everything she wrote, all her insights, at the religious There's a moment for her, and there was many moments in her story that were conversion moments. Everything from watching during the Great Depression, the bread lines and people lined up, you know, fighting for their little piece of food and to get some work and to feed their families. Everything from that to the birth of her baby, she'd say, was sort of this God moment. But there's one big conversion moment that stands out. At 35 years old, Dorothy took an assignment with Commonweal. It was a Catholic journal, lay edited, but it was all about social justice. They wanted to get that social justice out to Catholics to say, this is part of your faith. So she was charged with covering a hunger march in 1932, a hunger march that started in New York and went to D.C. So she was five years now into being a Catholic, and she needed to distinguish herself from this group of communists that were actually the ones who were heading up this march. Not everyone in the march at all were communists, but they looked to the communists because they were so good at organizing people. And she had this conflict, a conflict of the heart. Because as a, as a Catholic, it was clear that religion was an enemy of the cause. But as she saw the workers that were poor, that were suffering, driven by desperation, driven by hope. She had this realization that if Jesus was alive today, Jesus, Jesus would be marching 
in that march with those people. And in that moment, she asked herself this question, what did it mean to be a person of faith in a world that abused their fellow human beings so badly? For her, there was this growing sense that to be faithful to Jesus, she would need to follow and pursue the people that Jesus loved. And here's what's so beautiful about this story and how the divine works is that the day after the march, she found herself a church. She went to that church, got down on her hands and knees, and in tears she prayed, God, show me the way. Show me what's next. Open a door for me to step into this. The next day, she got home to New York, and waiting at her door was a man named Peter Morin. He is a guy who um, had read some of her stuff, had been told, you guys might connect. He was a deep man of faith, a theologian, kind of a religious philosopher from France. He showed up with the clothes on his body and his pockets stuffed with paper, and he thought that they might be able to connect. So he waited a day for her. And she showed up, and they started this relationship. And out of that relationship, here's what Peter urged her to do. He urged her to start a movement, a movement to, to promote the radical social message of the gospel. And it was like the spark that she needed, all the things that God had been doing in her life up until that moment. And so together, they came together, and they started what's called the Catholic Workers' Movement. They started with a Catholic, the Catholic Worker newspaper. And on May 1st, 1933, they had 2,500 copies that went out. She insisted that they be a penny apiece because she wanted everyone to be able to afford that paper. To this day, it's still a penny apiece. And the newspaper's goal was to make people aware of, social, of the social justice teaching of the Catholic Church. And here was their mission. Here was their goal. Their goal was to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. That sums up beautifully the work that they did together. But out of that came this Catholic worker movement. And in those days during the Depression, they set up these houses of hospitality where they fed and housed the homeless and within this moment, there, we now have a group of these autonomous communities across the country. They say there's about 187 of them that provide food and shelter to the homeless. And it's a platform, they say, to remind Americans that not everyone has the American dream. Their whole thing is about Jesus, his charity, his love of justice as well. And the Catholic workers, they continue this work to protest injustice and war and racism and violence in all forms. I can't think of anything that is more relevant to what's going on in our world today. Dorothy Day said this in one of her writings. As we come to know the seriousness of the situation, the war, the racism, the poverty in our world, we come to realize that things will not change be changed simply by words or demonstrations. Rather, it's a question of living one's life in a drastically different way. She was described as a stubborn, smiling, unruly saint who never stopped seeing the face of Christ in the faces of the poor around her. And she never stopped inviting everyone around her to see the face of Christ in everyone around her. She was a woman who loved scripture. 
And Matthew 25, 45 is something she lived by. Truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for, the, for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. She intentionally lived a life with seeing the face of Jesus in everyone that she encountered. I don't know about you, but that feels like a heavy call on our lives. Feels right, but it feels like a heavy call. But that was her mantra. That's how she did what she did. That's how she lived her life. But I think there's something more to it for us because I was thinking about this verse. I was looking back at the context of it. Do you guys, this comes out of the story, Jesus telling the story about the sheep and the goats. The Son of Man comes back and everyone's gathered and he takes those who have lived righteously and he says, hey, eternal life for you. Sheep's on the right. Hey, goats, damnation, you're going to the left. And here's what Jesus says, starting in verse 35. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did, you see, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you, a stranger, and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, Truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he'll say to those on the left, depart from me. You're cursed and the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and I was in prison and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did you see, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needy clothes or sick or in a prison and did not help you? And he will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. I think that's a lot. Like Dorothy Day, we acknowledge we are all human and broken and messy, and we have not arrived. We are on our own journey of conversions, of growing. But it's interesting about this scripture because I don't think it's that easy as categorizing ourselves as sheep or as a goat because the reality is we're both. And I'm guessing that I'm not the only one here that would say that there are times that I did stop and I fed people and I clothed them and I visited and I cared for those who were sick cared for the least of these. And guess what? There were other times that I drove past. I looked away or I pretended that I didn't see the person on the corner standing with a sign for help. And we could all sit here and we could talk about the reasons why we did or didn't do what we did, why we helped one day, why we didn't help the other day. We can justify our choices. I think those explanations are most often based on that person, the least of these, their story, their circumstances, but I don't think that's the point of this story. I don't think it was the point of Dorothy Day's story. It's not about telling the truth about the person, the one that's the least of these. 
that we did or didn't care for. It's about telling the truth about my life, about our life. It's about getting real, real with our own story, with our own life, with our own circumstances. Because I think when we actually pause and step into whatever God is calling us to right in front of this moment, when it includes the least of these, I think it's in when those moments that the least of these have a way of revealing to us most profoundly the truth about ourselves, the truth about who we are. And I think what's so important, and Dorothy Day did this so well, who are the least of these in your lives? Because it's, it's not just the person standing on the corner needing money. It's not the person that taps you on the back, which has happened to me at Target, and say, hey, can you pay for my my target run right now, it's not the person who always, that just gets out of prison and needs your help. It's not always the anonymous. Sometimes it's the people right in front of us. It's the people in our home. It's the people that we're sitting across the table from. Because we all have the least of these in our lives, even when they don't fit those stereotypes. Because it's not always about physical needs. It's about spiritual and emotional needs as well. And the least of these are in all our relationships. They're people that somehow, maybe not even knowing, we have a little power and control over. They're the ones who have less resources and less options than we might have. They're the ones that are overwhelmed with life and underwhelmed with support. They're the ones we can do what we want with and not really care about their response. They're the ones that sometimes are threatened or intimidated just by our very lives and what we have and what we can do. And so I think one of the questions we're asked tonight are who are the least of these in your life? Because again, they might be anonymous, but it might be someone sitting right next to you. Because at the end of the day, I think something built inside of us is that we want to make the world a better place. We want to be in relationship with each other. We want to be there and show up for one another. But this is not Jesus' story. Dorothy's story wasn't about searching for the least of these and then so that we could be helpful and caring and we could get to heaven. That's not what this story is about at all. It's not about counting. How many people have we have? How many people have I passed? Will I make it? 70% okay? That's not what this is about. This is not what Jesus was getting at. That's way too easy. We all know that we're supposed to care for one another. But I think Dorothy's story, just like what Jesus is talking about, names a reality in which we live. And this is the reality. It's a re the reality is that we are always pulled in different directions. We are pulled by the divine. We are pulled by our own humanity. And there's always a choice in front of us. And what we choose makes a difference. I think that's what Dorothy Day understood. Because for good or ill, what we choose makes a difference. And maybe what's really being said here is that there are two ways. We are pulled by God in one direction and our humanity in one another. And what if this story isn't so much about assigning reward or punishment, determining some eternal location for us, Maybe it's pushing back, pushing us to look at the truth in our own lives, to look at the choices that we make 
and so that we can be aware that our choices actually matter. I look at Dorothy Day, I look at Jesus' story as a wake-up call, as a reminder that when we encounter the least of these, when we encounter each other, that we see Jesus in each and every face. What do we see when we look at someone? Because if we can't see Jesus, maybe we ask, ask the question, what do they see in us? Do they see Christ in us? If we approached every single person in every single circumstance, in every choice we had to make, as if we were seeing Christ, that changes everything. Either way, there's this scene that I think Dorothy Day was so good at. And the scene it changes everything. I think that's what her life story is about. It's about seeing and acting on what we see. It's the both and. It's looking at the least of these and seeing the truth in our own life. Seeing God in them, God in us. Seeing the call that God has made on our hearts. What if we made our next choice based on the truth of not the other's life, but the truth of our own life? My guess is sometimes we'd say yes, other times we'd choose no, but every time we could choose in favor of the least of these. So what does her life, what does her life and her story ask of us? I think it asks us to see. I think it asks us to act. And I don't think, I was telling Matt this earlier, I'm not saying that everyone should give up all their worldly goods, live in ten tenement housing. I don't think that God, that's what God calls everyone to. God calls us all to different things. Because seeing the face of Christ in the suffering might look like showing up for your sister-in-law when she's dealing with cancer or showing up with friends after the loss of a baby. Or being the kind of teacher that loves each and every one of their kids. And no matter how hard it is, you look and you see the face of Christ. I think it looks a whole lot of different ways. But I think if we're not seeing the face of Christ, we're not able to follow Christ. Dorothy Day, it's interesting. I think she's as relevant today as she was in the 30s. And her relevance reflects... In some ways, how little things have changed in our social and political systems. Her faithfulness is seen as this symbol of how to move forward in a world where we've forgotten how to love our neighbors and to love ourselves, as we love ourselves. But near the end of her life, this is what Dorothy would always say, little by little, little by little, we love God by loving each other. I love that because I think this can feel overwhelming. It feels like a lot, but I think we have to trust the season we're in and trust what's right in front of us and trust that God continues to move in us in little ways. And sometimes it's a big way. Sometimes it's a life-changing way. The truth of conversion and the journey 
Dorothy knew was a lifelong process. It never fully ends. In Dorothy's words, the older I get, the more I meet people, the more convinced I am that we must only work on ourselves to grow in grace. The only thing we can do about people is to love them. For much of her adult life, most of it, she lived uh, with the urban poor and tenement housing on the Lower East Side. She ended up dying at the age of 83 in 1980 in that tenement housing where she lived most of her life. Her life witness was seeing the face of Jesus in the poor that she lived among and acting accordingly. You know, she continued to be the editor of that Catholic worker magazine until she died, or the newspaper. It's a lot. There's so much to her life, but I'll leave you with this. Maybe the only thing we need to be thinking about is how might we see, and then how might we act on that. Please pray with me. Holy and gracious God, um, a lot going on in our lives and in our world and it's sometimes really hard and sometimes we're tired but you do call us Lord you call us to see you in the least of these to see you in each other we can only do that with your help God help us to be people God that aren't afraid to get out of our comfort zone help us to be people who step out even at a cost that partner with you and bring in the kingdom here, that work for the things that Jesus stood for, for the poor, the suffering. Help us to be people, God, whose allegiance is not to political party or to even religion, but that our allegiance is to Jesus Christ, his words, his teachings, and his practices. Thank you for this community of people, God, who continue to walk through this world together. Help us to keep our eyes on you. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Uh, As Debbie was speaking tonight, thank you, Debbie. Um, I was thinking about, some of y'all know, I mean, most of y'all who are regulars here, Christopher, um, you know that one of the hats that I wear outside of my job here on Sundays, I serve as the Timberwolves team chaplain. And a few weeks back, we had the Indiana Pacers in town. There was this young buck named Buddy Heald who came through. And he, he wanted to pick my brain about um, David and Goliath. And I'm like, what am I going to say about David and Goliath? Like, I make something up. It might be intriguing. I don't really know. But I did. We had a good conversation. At the end of the conversation, he said, hey, can I get your number? I, I got a few different thoughts. I want to run past you later. And by later, I was thinking immediately post-game, didn't happen that way. It was about 12.30 at night when we started texting, and he said to me, he goes, have you ever noticed that in the battle between the Philistines and the Israelites, they were actually battling these two different armies, and they were going back and forth, the expectation on both of their behalfs that somebody was about to win. Goliath was like plan B or plan C. Like, that wasn't the initial thought that the Philistines went into the thing with. They were blindsided by this problem, but there was only one person who was able to perceive that it was actually something that we were capable of facing. Young boy David steps onto the scene. He hears what others can't hear. He knows the God that others don't know. 
and he recognizes that though they are, their ears are filled with all kinds of noise related to fear, insecurities, and all other issues, I will respond to this. When you're speaking tonight, Debbie, about Dorothy Day hearing things that um, few others could hear. And calling out that gap between like faith, practice, and all the other things we talk about all the time. It reminds me of that. This recognition of like the life of Dorothy Day inspires us to alter our ears and alter our eyes to be able to see the things that few can't see. To respond to the Christ that most people will pass on. I mean, that's the story of Christ. When you look at the X's and O's of his life, it is stopping. It is paying attention. It is giving weight to those that cross his path again and again and again. And that's, it's evident there. And we, we gather on this night every week. And we remember that life of Christ, and we remember that final moment together. Um, I said this last week when we were talking about Oscar Romero. I will say it again now that we're talking about Dorothy Day. With each of these saints that we are calling to mind and we're refreshing their stories on the forefront, it's important to understand that these people, that it's so easy to put on pedestals and disconnect from our actual lived realities, they are not just causes for veneration, they are invitations into imitation. They are calling us to participate in the life as they imitated from the life of Christ. One of the key ways that each of these saints hold in common is recognizing that the Eucharist, the Last Supper, the bread and the wine, the bread and the cup, when they lift it up, it's not just this ritualistic religious thing that we do together. It's actually this, this weekly reminder where we say, yeah. Like, this is my story, this is my song, and I'm going to step into it from Monday morning till next Sunday when I re-enlist once more. And we do that here the same kind of way. And so when we get together on Sunday nights, we pick up the bread and we remember the Christ who sat with his friends on the night before his betrayal, and he lifted it up. And he said, uh, this is my body broken for you. In the future, when I'm not here but you still are and you gather around this table, remember me. Don't lose sight of what it's all about. In the same way, he lifted up the cup and he said, this is my blood shed for the forgiveness of all sins, the blood of the new covenant. Please don't make this small. Man, what a big story I'm leaving with you with. Please don't make this small. Please don't neuter it into some kind of religious activity. We have to mind your P's and Q's. That's not what this is about. I'm asking you, I'm inviting you into a life lived for the least of these. The ones that we try to see the least often. This is my blood. This is a time of re-enlistment. And so we invite you to participate in it. In a moment, we're going to invite you to come up in the center island when you are ready. Uh, island by aisle, that's what it is, not an island. May got you nervous there. But before we do, will you please stand with me as we say the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. Our God, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, the glory forever. Amen.
much of Dorothy Day that I would have loved to have shared, but if you guys want to dig further into it, there's a great book, I think it was out in 2022, called Dorothy Day, The Unruly Saint. Um, there's a couple other really great ones, too, that are so worth looking at. You know, she was someone her entire life gave the, literally gave the coat off her back over and over again. Her her apartment had people sleeping on the floor all the time who didn't have a place to stay. Her daughter tells a story of how if her daughter had two blankets on her and someone needed a blanket, she took one and gave it away. I mean, she there were buttons for a while, um, Dorothy Day buttons that said, if you have two coats, um, you have one too many and you need to give it away. Oh, that was convicting for me. No kidding. Um, but I wanted to say too, what's interesting is, you know, in 83, she died in 80, they actually nominated her, I don't know the process, for canonization, which they're still looking into. And so many people close to her said she would not have liked that at all. She actually said that once you became a saint, it's sort of watered down, whitewashed all the stuff that you did. But she would have hated, like about the million plus dollars it's taken over 20 years for the process because she was someone that always stood as much as she loved her Catholic religion. Um, she stood aligned with Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount and his teachings. And it, it's such a beautiful reminder. So my prayer for all of us is that we might see what's right in front of us, that we might look into each other's faces and the faces of the stranger and see Jesus, and that we might be moved to act in whatever way we can. So with that, um, please hold your hands out for our benediction. No matter who you are or what you've done, no matter who you love or what you've lost, no matter where you've been or the places that you've stayed, you always have a place at the table because you are a beloved child of God and beloved you belong. Thanks, everyone. See you next week. Go in peace.